Hi, this is Cassius Felicella, and you're listening to Homeroom, a podcast dedicated to everything startup-related. My guest today is Farzi Yusufali. Farzi is a co-founder at Stratum AI, an artificial intelligence tool that tells mining companies where to mine to maximize profits. She was part of the 2020 batch at YC, and we're really excited to have a conversation with her about the metals and mining sector. So at this point, you're a co-founder of an incredibly interesting business. But going back before that, you have a background in quantum computing, machine learning, but also a bachelor's in material science. Yeah, like really deep understanding material science. Everything, every theoretical subject you can ask for, I have gone through in school. Wasn't easy, pretty painful. Um, But it was an interesting collection of courses, if you will, that sparked my interest on all types of science. And that sort of reflects itself in the co-op experiences I did, right? So I've done everything from working in a hospital, doing tissue engineering research, all the way up to playing with lasers on hot summer days in school. So I run the gamut and that just sort of, it, it leads really well into the type of person I am, which is very interested in science. I'm a purist in that way. Could you talk to us about those transitions and jumps? Like, how did one thing lead to another and how connected are these various disciplines? Yeah, so it'll be kind of hilarious to learn that when I was in high school, I was fighting my parents to join uh, the fine arts degree program in OCAD. That's what I wanted to do. But my parents really pushed me against that. Call it the immigrant man- mentality saying, you know, we sacrificed so much for you to do something with your life and you're going to take such a risky path. Understanding where they come from and also my own natural abilities in the sciences in general, I understood. Um, but I'm not one to take something like that and just walk with it, you know? So I put a wager of my own in there saying, look, if you want me to do engineering, I'm going to do it like as close to science as I want. And if I graduate with distinction, a couple of uh, occurrences on the dean's list, then you get to pay for two semesters of arts class as soon as I'm done. So that's exactly what I did. Um, graduating from school, which I do not recommend to anybody who does this, you need a break. What I did was I finished my last exam and literally about a week later, I had started classes at OCAD. And I did that for eight months took whatever I wanted and just did art for eight months straight. I'm sort of the kind of person who likes to learn anyway. So that's not really an issue. I just found a way to negotiate with my parents rather than fight with them. And my parents are right. Like if you want it, if art was meant to be, try it out for eight, like eight months and see if this is what you want. Then we'll support you after that point. But we think that going through university and getting a solid education, especially given um, your aptitude in the sciences would be a waste. And and I understood that. And like, I understand that mentality because I am myself, they are not the immigrants. I'm also an immigrant as well. I understand the opportunity that a stellar education without having to pay for it does for me. I understand that. So I'm very well aware. Like when I was in school in uh, in Nairobi, which is my hometown, Nairobi, Kenya is where I'm from. The fees they had to pay to get me into school that would allow me to study wherever I want was not cheap. 
So that privilege of having a good education still sticks with me today. If I'm going to be doing something for somebody, it would be helping it will help them get educated because it is the great equalizer. That makes a lot of sense, though. I mean, most passions aren't found, they're developed, in my opinion. But I do want to get your thought on this. I would argue that science and the arts are very intertwined when it comes to innovation and entrepreneurship. So how did skills in one role play out in the other? Right. So the creativity you need to work in research and to think outside of the box when coming with up with solutions comes from art, just knowing how things sort of kind of fit together and what things will and won't work. So that's a creativity, like a, a skill set you, that you cultivate by doing the arts because you exercise that part of your brain where you think for yourself, you think of new ideas, you formulate what you want something to look like or how it should perform, right? Like if you draw a picture with a blank canvas, you have to be able to transfer what you have in your head or some version of that onto paper without looking like complete garbage, right? Like you can't fake being a good artist. It takes practice. Same thing goes with other things. If you want to be good at math, it takes practice. If you want to learn the sciences or get an intuition for something, it takes practice. Intuition is literally the result of a lot of practice and then getting so good at it that your brain doesn't have to work as hard to produce what you want. You get a feeling. You don't have to work at it. So in everything I've done, I've always had to solve a problem, whatever it be. In tissue engineering, um, the brief I got from my supervisor was that there's a group of children who have very weak bladder tissue, so it tends to rupture a lot. Unfortunately, they take pieces of your lower intestine to fix it, right? But you only have so much lower intestine that you can, you can use to, to, to fix those little punctures in the tissue. And on top of that, these cell types are not, they're different from each other, so they don't tend to mesh very well. So over time, those tissues do degrade, and then you have to replace it. So my brief was that, can you come up with something that would allow us to seed somebody's own cells, bladder cells, and create a tissue um, over time? So the way I thought about it was, hey, look, why don't we just put a, a giant version of like a contact lens, attach it to the tissue itself, and then let it degrade over time? I don't know if you know this, but contact lenses are actually 99% water. So they actually hold a lot of stuff. So what you can do is hold things like um, proteins and growth factors and all sorts of things that helps cells grow. And you can literally seed it into that. And once it's exposed to a water environment, it will release those factors um, in a controlled way because you can control the porosity of that particular structure. So it didn't come up naturally, but it took a couple of iterations. But I had an idea of what I wanted. And it just takes practice to get there, you just keep reading and seeing how different things are being done in different places. And you'll find, and you'll tend to know what might and might not work. How would you develop that frame of mind though? Because I really do think that the immigrant mindset of always finding a way to win and never giving up is really a competitive advantage. So how do you train those skills? And even for yourself, how have you bettered them over the years? Yeah. So I would say learning a skill specifically in the arts is a good way. So if you want to learn, like if you want to learn how to draw from scratch, that's a skill in itself. Learning how to pick up a skill like that, you can't fake it. So if you learn to pick up that skill and you re reach a certain level of proficiency, 
then you know how to, you're not afraid to acquire other skills as well. And with some level of mastery, then you get to a point where you can now start combining things and looking for new ways that um, you can combine those skills or apply one skill here and then and then move it to another place. The problem solving side of me where, you know, I don't give up or anything like that, that's more circumstance than anything else. Like the running joke in my family is that nothing seems to go my way. Like if I plan for something, it just doesn't never, never happens. I've tried to start my master's, I think three, four times now, never happened for me. And it's a combination of, you know, circumstance and situations that happen to me and decisions that I make that might end up being better or end up being thrown in my, uh, in front of me. And I have to make a, I have to make a choice. So in that sense, not planning <laughs> helped me find interesting ways to go around certain roadblocks and conventionally would be there. So most people, when I taught, like leading into further experiences in quantum computing, most people, when they talk to me, assume that I, I have a PhD in quantum computing. That's what they assume. But my work experiences dictate otherwise. You have to, like any other skill, you have to become to learn and train at quantum computing to become good at it and train it and speak intelligently on it. I feel like, especially with entrepreneurs, given that there is a very high chance of failure, there is that certain level of believing in yourself and pushing forward. How do you at the same time have that bigger vision, a grandiose vision that you want to come true? How do you match that with vulnerability and saying, look, I know I'm very good at this, but this is something I'm struggling with. Can you help? I think that's very difficult for a lot of people. I am, uh, I, the only thing I can say is that once you become very well acquainted with your own deficiencies, you don't become afraid of them. So if you're shit at drawing, you'll know you're shit at drawing. Like, be, like take going, bringing it back to that example, being shit at something first a little while and then becoming better at it. That's, that's normal. You have to lose that, that lie you tell yourself. You have to become really honest with yourself. Uh, and for a lot, for some people it's tough, but I'm so used to it now that I don't really notice anymore. Like you bring it up and I'm like, huh, I didn't actually realize that I, I don't lie to myself in that sense. So yeah, it's a, it's a skill to develop, but the way I center myself, at least with start with this particular company is that, look. By lying to myself, in the, at the end of the day, I'm not getting the help I need and I'm damaging my company. At the end of the day, I want to make money. And the only way I'm going to make money is to fix these deficiencies. So either I get with it or find somebody else who will. Could you talk to us about how you built your team? Like when hiring the people you did, how did you know that they knew what they were good at as well? I mean, what were some indicators? So for the team, it was interesting. Because I'll give uh, my co-founder, Daniel, some credit for this. Our first employee is another Daniel. We have, a, we have an internal joke where we tend to hire only Daniels in our team. But uh, the other Daniel that we have, he had worked with Dan, uh, my co-founder, Daniel, for a while before this. They, they actually went to UFT together. Um, and when we were first tinkering with the idea of this work, we all ended up working with each other. And the only way you know that somebody is going to work well with you is 
not necessarily if they know what to do all the time, but are honest with what they can and can't do. The one, the one thing I'll give myself credit for in this case is that I, I'm really good at putting the, like taking the pressure off as far as making that the person I work with feels comfortable about admitting there that they don't know what to do. I, I've said it, right? I'm used to not knowing what to do for a lot of things, but then you just have to find somebody who's willing to figure it out with you. So for example, when we hired um, one of our first interns in January, I gave him a brief, uh, which was this paper that he had to code up for me. It, it's called the cursed paper internally. It's not a good, well-written paper. There are a lot of issues with it. And I set this paper purposefully because a person who doesn't think critically will just transcribe it and not test it and see that there's lots of things wrong with it. If there's a person who's willing to test it and runs into lots of issues, then we know that this person is thinks logically and thinks critically and is willing to work through a problem. When we finish that hiring process, that coding assignment never gets finished because it is a bad paper. I gave them something bad to work with, which is, I guess, somewhat analogous to the kind of mining uh, data we get with, get anyway. But in that process of working with, of hiring them and testing them on this coding assignment, I'm working with them. So we schedule calls uh, discussing the problem, thinking about various uh, methods we could try to fix it. I, I tell them right away that this is a cursed paper, so don't worry about not getting it right. But I want to learn their thought processes and how they try to solve problems, how communicated they are, in, and, and how, doc, how well they document all the things that they tried. Because at the end of the day, um, as far as how we operate internally, it is very much like a research lab. You trial and error, lots of stuff, you document what you've done, and you try to iterate faster, better, stronger. Have you ever seen someone from a non-traditional or even non-technical background ever truly succeed in these deep tech environments? Yeah, I mean, like my intern, the intern that I, I just mentioned, right, when, which we hired in January, he had no background in machine learning whatsoever. I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm being a little facetious here because there's an extra level of skill required to work in machine learning just above coding. But as far as his capabilities, he could only just code. Like he didn't have that background in data analytics and and machine learning, which is more of a, a, a researchy science than just, you know, coding up something and it's there. So in that sense, he didn't have that kind of background. I, if I'm not mistaken, in at UFT, I think he did uh, data science, which is at most, you know, data analytics. Um, and he told me, like, look, I don't have a background in machine, machine learning, but I'll give it a try. And we had a couple of calls over, over Christmas discussing what he wanted to try and how he wanted to do it. And I said, look, the easiest way to do it is put it in a notebook to show me how you did things. You know, let me run it and then we can just talk about it. So the one thing I look for is not necessarily the background or the school or the program or what have you. I think that's what you're sort of getting at. I look at their ability to, to learn and to be a little bit scrappy. So what I noticed with him is that even though his code was a little messy, his, he was scrappy and he was trying out different things. And that told me right away that even if he doesn't know anything about machine learning, he'll pick it up. Because that's what I need is somebody who can pick up something new and is willing to make mistakes and also be communicative. 
about the roadblocks he faces because I don't want him to basically be banging ahead his head against a wall and not telling anybody about it. I mean, I know it's a little bit outside of what what you're talking about, but if we're talking about like as somebody who's truly non-technical, it takes a lot of work. It takes it takes some time to get acquainted with this industry. Uh, like I can tell you, I had a basic like basic to intermediate programming ability coming out of school. And I had to, I learned on the job. So due to various circumstances, I couldn't pursue my master's after uh, going to art school and I had to get a job. So I used, but I had to also be flexible as well in, in, in my own life. So I had, so I picked up some contacts that I had at Waterloo to do just some basic data analytics work, stuff that is, you know, closer to what I knew coming out of school. But then as time goes on and as I got more work um, from various companies, clients and what have you, I slowly built up that skill set because I had to. I had to perform a job or or meet a certain brief based on what the client gave me. And I did that for two, three, three and a half years straight, just doing that. So that's how I actually built up my machine learning ability. It's not by going to school. It was literally being thrown into it on the deep end and having to figure my way out through it. And I was very communicative with the people I was working with, but they also knew that the work I do generally is of high quality. So if I don't know it now. I'll probably figure it out, but just be communi- But I was just communicative and I, I look for others who can do the same. I'm always curious to ask this because of how ambitious founders are. But were there hesitations when it came to those big moments like interviewing at YC? Or did you simply view them as steps in the journey that had to happen no matter what? Oh, sure. I mean, it's not linear when you learn. Like if I couldn't figure something out, you know, I would beat my head against a wall and, you know, obviously get all types of frustrated on it. But at the end of the day, especially when there's money and a livelihood that that is con- that is on the line, I had to figure it out, you know? Um, and in and, and doing so, I also had to look for help as well. So you'd be surprised how many times I had 100 tabs open with all sorts of stock overflow tickets trying to fix some of my problems as far as implementing machine learning or data and some, some sort of task that my clients had asked for. So it's not like you have to look for help next door there are people online that are that are helpful as well the beauty about the software engineering machine learning community is that they document a lot of stuff online and there's a lot of stuff that's open source and in fact if you're brave enough you can actually contact the authors of some of the pieces that people write so in that sense the the resources resources are there i mean but it takes a certain amount of humility to realize that you're very wrong and you need help But I'm, as I mentioned before, I'm quite used to that now. There's a great line by Vinod Khosla, and he says, the reason I succeed is because I've failed more than anybody else. And I really do think that's a big reason why some people do well is because they aren't afraid to put themselves out there. They aren't afraid to stick out their necks and and they're okay if things don't work because they'll figure it out. Yeah. I mean, like if we're going to be real, like real, real, starting a startup, especially in the early days is tough. If you're not willing to go without pay for two years or even after going without pay for two years, you realize that you don't have a business 
you need to be able to you need to have the strength courage to do something like that because that's how startup life is there are lots of companies out there you know that start as a rocket ship and continue being a rocket ship but the truth of the matter is especially for a lot of companies in the deep tech space that's just not true and there are personal sacrifices that you have to make for what you're trying to create right the question is is the idea worth it and can you do you have the courage to go this long haul and go through the the absolute lows of of doing the start the startup i just happen to be the type of person who's so uncomfortable all the time that i'm kind of used to it i like that though i think being antsy and always wanting to do more is a good thing a question that i had about pitching is when approaching people with the vision that you had was it difficult for them to get behind the fact that it was a long-term play? Like, would you say these markets have gotten receptive over the last decade or have they remained the same? Yeah, it's, I would say it's the latter. It's more of the same. I can't tell you the number of times that people have told me, no, this is not going to work. No, thanks. You know, outside of raising the money that we did raise, there were plenty more people who said, yeah, this is not for me. Or, you know, they say no for other reasons besides just, you know, the idea itself. Sometimes they don't know mining. Sometimes they don't like my pedigree. Uh, sometimes they just don't like anything deep tech in general. And that's okay. You just have to find the people who are willing to back you up. But the truth of the matter is that in order to get people to buy into the vision, especially something that is so outside of their own um, own reality, like mining and AI, people just don't, can't seem to connect the two. If I just said those two words, would you, would you have understood what I was saying? After doing this for so long and hopefully getting so deep into the subject matter, you hope you can be proficient enough, like a skill that you can explain it and teach it to somebody else. So when we talk about, let's take the investor example. When we talk to investors, the first thing I generally have to do is figure out how much they know about mining first. So I've had people who have some exposure to mining, and I've had people who didn't even realize that copper came out of the ground. I've seen it all. So if I know where they're at, I can meet them where they're at, where they're at and then explain it to them in a way that makes sense. So one of the using the example, the latter example, where the person didn't know that copper came out of the ground. I told them that 50% of your phone is made from materials that come out of the ground. You know, mining is this huge industry that is really not visible to, to most people. It just so happens that being from Toronto, you are very exposed to mining. To make them believe that if they don't understand mining, that you understand mining, and that you're in the right place and right time to do something about something in mining. In that sense, just having that conversation, getting them up mm-hmm. to speed, and then letting them know, like, look, this is there's a reason why this is a legacy industry. This is not going to be that rocket ship that gets you that you can exit out of seven years. It, it's not going to be that. But the opportunity is so large that it could revolutionize an entire industry that feeds every other industry. That's how you have to feed it. You have to make it relevant to their reality again. So for those who aren't familiar with the industry, can you talk about some of the rules and regulations that are in place? Like, is the battle getting your foot in the door or 
is the real one to be had once you get into that inner circle in the industry? The industry is pretty opaque, I got to say. It, it is run, they're not very public about the way they do business. They're not particular PR mavens, uh, unless you're in the mining industry world where they, you know, sort of PR to each other. Getting into the industry and getting trust is hard and getting yourself up to date or getting yourself up to speed as to how mining works and how the process generally is from start to finish is not easy. And I would still say to this day, I don't think our team truly knows that. Mostly it's a consequence of COVID because we haven't had um, a long enough time on a mine site. Uh, we can't go on mines because of the COVID restrictions and all that. But I think once we do, it'll give others and myself probably a little bit more clarity on what we can do. As far as what we needed to know to start this company, we knew there was a problem in the industry just from our own personal backgrounds. Both When I say our, I mean Daniel and myself, where mining was a topic of conversation at our respective dinner tables. So in that sense, we were not completely naive to the influence of mining in the world. As far as getting to how we apply AI, that was a little bit more difficult, but we were lucky enough to have good partners within UFT, just professors who are willing to chat with us and give us a full-on breakdown on a whiteboard on how mining works. And what we realized is that there is a gap in the market where the way people guess or model out what's in the ground and how much has been the same for about 60 years. That in itself leads to all sorts of inefficiencies from the beginning of a mine's life all the way up to an end. Because if you don't know for with any certainty what's in the ground and how much, you can imagine how wasteful mining can truly be. And that's obviously a topic of conversation that's more surface to, to the world. Um, but the root cause is that you just don't know where your stuff is. So when we decided to tackle this particular issue, we were tackling it from a mindset that if the data is of good quality, it may have some other issues, but is of generally good quality, then we should be able to, the machine learning uh, algorithms we create should be able to learn the patterns in the ground better than what a geologist can do. So in a sense, it, there is a bit of serendipity there as far as learning the industry, but Getting like one side of the industry versus the other side being meaning outside versus inside, it's the same sort of difficulty because it's still opaque and it's still very much a club. So breaking into that means that you have to provide something truly game changer for them. And that's what we've done. The last thing I wanted to ask was for non-technical people. Where can they go to learn more about the industries you've worked in? Do you typically follow specific subject materials, specific researchers? What do you typically look at? I do not follow the researcher. I follow the research. I do not, this is sort of counterintuitive, but I don't necessarily listen to talks. I listen to lectures. I'm not interested in a pedigree per se. I'm, I'm interested in the idea. Maybe this is a pure researcher in me. I love I love to listen to Perimeter Institute's uh, le public lectures. Their public lecture lecture series are pretty good. They're sort of skew on the on the physics bent, but it's very accessible to a non technical audience. So I like to listen to things like that because I just generally just enjoy it. 
I think the thing is you need to find something that you enjoy and then just deep dive into it just for your own personal happiness, you know, interest, whatever. Because generally speaking, if you deep dive into something, you will find gaps in what you'll create your own knowledge base and your own view of that entire field. And then you can find gaps or, you know, tackle a specific problem that you're truly interested in, in the same way that a researcher would in, in the lab. There, there's no reason that you need to go to school. I'm, again, being a little bit biased here because I haven't gone to school after bachelor's. I'd love to at some point, but I don't think you necessarily need somebody to teach you to be able to get acquainted with a certain field of study. So there is an example I actually have, which um, somebody asked me to pull out for them. Uh, somebody asked me, what lectures or what would I want to read if I wanted to learn more about quantum computing? And the first thing I usually do is give them a link for the Feynman lectures on physics. So these are available to everybody um, through the Caltech uh, University website. You can just read through the transcript and follow the notes and you just listen to the lecture. I personally enjoy it because this is something I, I truly love. Like I, I really like reading about these things, but this is not this is not just relegated to just physics or something as pure, purely theoretical as what I'm doing. If you're interested in agriculture, then start reading. It doesn't matter what. If you're interested in specifically cherry agriculture, that's what you read first. I, I tend not to listen to talks about people doing things. Everybody's experience is different. I can't map my life to this person's life and nor can they map their life to mine. I can just learn about certain paths that they took that would have made their lives easier in their own journey. So there's one, one nugget I heard. It, it was, don't, don't fall in love with your idea. Now, if you ask me who said that, I have no idea, but it's stuck. So I, I, I go after the information, not the informer. That's it. I want to thank Farzi from Stratum AI for coming on today, especially for this long to talk about our industry with us. I'm Cassius Velicella, and this is the Homeroom Podcast. Be sure to check us out on LinkedIn, YouTube, and Twitter at Homeroom Podcast. Thanks for listening.